Hey, everybody. Welcome to No One Told Me, where we believe hindsight is everything. My name is Callie, and every week, here's what we do. Either you walk with me through something that I'm going through, or, or maybe I get to walk with you. But regardless, the goal is that we use our stories to inform and equip those who are coming behind us so that maybe they feel just a little less alone in whatever it is that they're going through. Now, a lot of times those can be like light subjects that are kind of fun and, you know, we can joke around about them and it's a good time. And then some like this week are a little tougher, right? They're the subjects that you want to like push stop on. And that's why I agonized over the title of this episode because grief is not something that you're excited to hear about, right? It's not something that you're like, ooh, let me push play on this one because it's going to be great. It is great. Now, I would not put anything that out here that is not great, but it is hard. And a lot of times the only way to get through the hard is to go through the hard, right? I mean, there's no, there's no around it. There's no shortcut. That's just the only way to do it. So that's why this episode is so important. It's because so many of us don't know how to get through the hard, We have not been equipped. No one told us what grief feels like. No one told us that grief can feel like shame sometimes or guilt or anger. No one told us that it's more than just a sadness, that you actually have to be equipped to walk through it. And the thing is, is I don't know if you've experienced much grief in your life so far. You know, sometimes it's from the loss of a person. Sometimes it's from the the loss of a, a thing or a place Sometimes it's with the diagnosis. Sometimes it's the grief of what you thought would be and wasn't, you know, like the grieving of lost expectations or unfulfilled expectations. That's the thing. It shows up in so many ways. And yet we've put it in this box that it only is supposed to look one way, but it looks different for every single person. And if that's the case, then how every person walks through it should look different too. So how do we recognize it? How do we know if we're actually moving forward through it or if we've just found a nice little box to stuff it down into? Talking to myself here and I just shut the box and I put it in a closet because the problem with that is, is it manifests in another way in my life later on. It just sneaks back out in another way, in a new way. And so I've invited my friend, Amanda, who actually wrote a book about grief and the rituals. And here's what was so interesting. It's the rituals of grief in in, um, cultures and countries all over the world. And what is most interesting is the U.S. in particular, there aren't many rituals for grief. Now, there are some religious ones in like little areas and little pockets. But overall, there's none because... No one has told us, no one has taught us what does it look like to grieve in a healthy way, in a way that we grow from and move forward in. So all I'm asking is give it a shot before you hit pause and jump to something else that is way more fun (laughs) to probably hear about. I will say we do have fun on this episode. Amanda, when you hear that someone wrote a book about grief, you kind of imagine them to be a certain way, right? You're like, this person is probably not a good time. I mean, I'm just, I'm just being honest. Okay. If you're going to write a whole book about this, 
I think you're maybe not a good time, but she's the best time, guys. I mean, I had so much fun. She was the most pleasant surprise, the most pleasant surprise of an interview that I've had in a long time because we hit it off and we just had such a good time recording this for you guys. So I know without a doubt, you are going to be better for listening to this. And I can't wait for you to hear from my new friend, Amanda. Amanda, your publisher sent a book to my house, which was awesome. It's only happened a handful of times and I'm always just very excited because it's so pretty to hold and to know that someone poured so much into. It feels like such a gift. But I was reading it last week and my one of my favorite parts is how you opened it with just, I was trying to get into a, a church sanctuary and I found myself in a basement and I immediately was like, what's this girl doing in a basement? How are you? What are you? What's happening? So you pulled me in from the very beginning. We were talking a little bit before I hit record, but it's this whole launching of a book. It's pretty vulnerable, right? Especially a book based on grief. And that has some of your most deep feelings of what you walked through personally. So, I mean, how are you feeling? I mean, I know it's probably terrifying. Why did you know that you needed to write this and go through the pain that it is to actually push it out into the world? Yeah. Well, I've heard people say, like, you write the book you need, you write the book you want to read. And I really needed this book. And I needed to know I wasn't alone. And so I I don't want to say my book was a cry for help, because I'm sure my therapist would probably have something to say about that. <laughs> but I think it was more that it was like, hey, this is what I'm feeling. I want to be really honest about it. Is anybody else feeling this too? And just to to have the responses that I've had, people say, I, I just had someone text me last night that was like, oh my goodness, me too. Like I, I had, I didn't know what to wear to my dad's funeral. And I thought like picking out an outfit for my dad's funeral was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I thought I was crazy. And it's like, no, I, that was hard for me too. And so just to, for people to kind of write back and say, yes, specifically, this is what I've experienced. This is how I've felt. And to not feel alone in it, like it's people, you know, people might think, oh, the book, the book is helping me, you know, the person that's reading it, but it's helping me as the author to see people's responses come in, you know? Yeah. Isn't that so, even the text that you got last night, how we attach things to close. It's so weird. I had to go in and have a really hard meeting probably about six months ago. And I picked a shirt that I really didn't like because I was like, I am only ever going to think about this moment when I look at that shirt from now on. So I just, if I need to get rid of it, I can. And so that's like, those are the feelings that you think you're the only one and it makes you feel a little crazy, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Anyone else thinking this and just the value, I guess as I get older, I'm more understanding the value of being seen where you are and not feeling like the enemy wants to isolate you a little bit and make you feel like you are crazy. No one else is is thinking that. But when you release a book like this about grief, which is a topic, I personally always just want to shove it in a box and move on, right? Like Mm -hmm. I am mourning something, I'm grieving something, no one wants to hear about this. So I'll just, I'll pretend it's not happening. And I'll just keep, keep going. And I remember a friend giving me C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, which is honestly, it's tiny. It's so short. It is one of the most powerful books I think I've ever read. And the opening line alone, no one told me that grief felt so much like fear. Yeah. What yeah. have you learned? I mean, he, he, the whole book is about his experience with the loss of his wife. And I know you share just a handful of experiences. The way, Amanda, that you write about the loss of your sister trying to 
observe Ash Wednesday a little bit in her honor, just as a way to feel close to her. And then followed by a miscarriage, another miscarriage, like the very next day. I mean, there was moments of grief stacked up against each other. And so that's where I want to lean into now is what have you learned about the experience of grief, how to truly grieve deeply, not in a way where you're lost to everything else, but in a way that you can continue to move forward. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, this is interesting. I am a pretty, I have always been a person who's very mindful about what people think of me in the sense that I I always want to appear controlled and appear to be strong and smart. You know, like these things are very important to me more probably than they should be. Mm. And I just remember as each of these different griefs in my life unfolded, each one feeling like, okay, am I going to rise to the occasion? Like that was a question I was asking myself, like, am I, am I going to, am I going to be able to kind of be strong and have fortitude and resilience through this? And, and even like, will people think I'm strong? Mm -hmm. That was coming to my mind quite a bit. And I I realized that like, I just had to kind of let go of this sense that like grief was a performance that like you encounter challenges in life. And the goal then is to prove something through it, like to prove that you can handle it, to prove that you're stronger, to prove that you can find a silver lining, to prove that you can stay positive like that. I just, I feel like it was finally at that Ash Wednesday service that I was like, stop, Amanda, just stop. Like you're losing another baby. You need to like, settle down and just let yourself fall apart. Mm. Let yourself be upset. And if people judge you for that, or if people question your theology, or if people try to like cram the hope of the Lord down your throat, like you can just be honest with them and say, my hope is still in the Lord. And also I'm shattered and I'm not doing well and I'm not okay. And I, I don't know. I felt like there's something about that service that gave me permission to finally do that. Not not permission from other people. I needed permission from myself, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm. I relate so much to the trying to guess what other people are going to think about something. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. adjusting yourself to try to, to fit that so that they're thinking what you want them to be thinking. Yes. And yes. and I don't know, and I'm sure you've learned because you did extensive research to be able to write this book about grief, but also like the historical grief rituals across so many mm-hmm. cultures. But I wonder if it's just an offshoot question, if it's a very American thing to try to package our grief in mm-hmm. a way that is not just acceptable, but almost appealing in a way that shows yeah. we are, I'm good at this. Yeah. Well, I think America is probably the culture that I feel most strongly believes and has historically believed that happiness is a right, like that comfort, privilege, wealth, prosperity is a right. It's almost like a divine right. It's Mm -hmm. an expectation. And it's kind of no wonder, like we are a very privileged society in terms of wealth, you know, access to resources, life expectancy, medical care, like we actually have so many blessings, but there's something in our psyche that makes us believe that we're entitled to it, that, that we've, we've normalized ease and kind of marginalized pain and suffering. We've normalized happiness. You, you know, it's a very consumeristic culture. You deserve you, like happiness can be bought. You can buy it. You can purchase it and you deserve it. All of these things. And so we just, we've really shoved grief to the margins because it just doesn't fit within our narrative of what we expect to be ours, to expect Mm. to be our experience. Even though 
there are plenty of us in this country that have experienced catastrophic loss, health, health scares, health crises. I mean, we've had a pandemic and I think that's kind of why like people were so, people seem so shocked by mm-hmm. the pandemic because it's like all of a sudden we realize, nope, you, you can't control your outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so we just, it's not, it, to me, it's, it, it's not as much about the form of the ritual as much as just the lack of ritual. Like we just mm-hmm. don't have these practices that help integrate sorrow and integrate loss and death into our own lives. We've put cemeteries are far outside the city, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like funerals are like a two hour event that happened just the week after the death. And then it's over. You move forward. We don't wear black. We don't, um, you know, we don't have these kind of memorial services a year after the event, two years after the event, like they do in many cultures, just things like that, that we've just not worked it into our everyday rhythms. Mm. And, you know, you hear people say, I mean, I've heard people in my own family say, Hey, when I pass around, pass away, I want you to throw a party. Like I want it to be a celebration. And I want, you know, and it's like, I get the sentiment of that, but on the flip side, it's another way that we are avoiding really walking through the grieving of and the loss that we're experiencing. Yeah. And that yeah. even going back to that C.S. Lewis quote, the connection of grief and fear. And yeah. I've just yeah. been really learning probably the past couple of weeks that one, I hate change and it's because I have a fear of it, which is rooted yeah. in a belief that I had control to begin with. Right. And yes, And when these losses happen, it's this reminder, okay, you don't have any control over what's happening. And then you have this fear and then the fear, it's like you don't grieve instead of letting the fear give way to sadness. You almost let give way to like anger. Like I'm just Mm -hmm. really ticked off that, that this is happening. And so in your research, as you studied like how people walk through it, whether they go toward fear or whether they go to fear, anger or whatever it might be. These rituals, which are dying out, the goal of them was to create spaces for yeah. grief. There's these just beautiful rituals. And what you're not saying is we need to do these rituals. What you're saying is we have to create space for the grief that's yeah. in our lives. So across these, what parallels kind of did you draw about how we experience grief across yeah. the different cultures? Yeah. So like, no, okay, here's something no one ever told me about grief. Gosh, I love that's You know, if that's not a nod in some branding direction, Amanda, I can appreciate it. <laughs> as I said, I wasn't intentionally trying to do that. I, it, I, but as it came out, I was like, you're welcome. You um, are. No I am. Thank you, ma'am. Thank but, you. But, but seriously, and this is why this is, it's actually a great name for a podcast. There's so much people don't tell us about so much in life and about suffering. Mm-hmm. No one told me that grief had so many different emotions that came with it. Mm-hmm. Like in my mind, I thought a grief was just a very straightforward emotion. Like a person died, you were sad to see them go. And that was it. Like grief was sadness. That's what I thought. I had no idea grief was fear. Like you and C.S. Lewis said, I had no idea that grief would feel like anger, like resentment, like guilt, Mm. shame. I think the strangest emotion I felt in my grief was shame. This shame that somehow I'd been like hoodwinked or something. Yeah. Like I was embarrassed not embarrassed by my emotions, although there were times I was embarrassed by my sadness, but it was embarrassed like, like I let like death get the better of me and I should have somehow seen it coming. Mm. And I was like caught unaware, like like with broccoli in my teeth or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It was a weird feeling of shame. And, and that's where I think 
I wasn't able to identify, to really identify those emotions. It all just felt like a lot of noise in my head and in my body until I started studying grief rituals. And it's like, okay, covering the mirrors, that's a ritual about fear. It's fear. It's, you know, it's a superstition. So superstitions are rooted in fear. This idea that if we don't cover the mirror, the, the dead person's soul is going to be stuck in, in this life and they won't be able to proceed into the afterlife or fear that if you see your reflection in the mirror, you'll be the next to die. Mm -hmm. And, and a superstition in some odd way gives, it names the fear, but it also gives someone kind of this sense of agency over it, like a thing to do to maybe give you some sense of control. And so it was like, okay, well, what am I doing? What are the things I'm doing to try to like grasp at control? And that it just helped me kind of explore that, you know, mm-hmm. know that this studying about postmortem photography that, you know, that people used to take pictures of the dead and put them in these little encasements and stare at them, you know, every evening and just reflect on the person. It just helped me think about the impact of memory and how we remember someone and how easy it is to forget what, a you know, because mm-hmm. back in the day, you didn't have photographs of people. People couldn't really, but this helped you remember. So what do I need to do to help myself remember the person rightly? It just, it just became the scaffolding by which I can name and explore the emotions I was experiencing. That's what I love so much about it is you take story and you take these traditions, but you weave them into this practical, like, here's what we're taking away from this. Like here is here is why this mattered so much to this culture. And here's why it matters to us now mm-hmm. today. And yeah, yeah. And out of that, I know you were able to develop your own rituals, even though, I mean, we say ritual because it's just something you do. It's like a routine. Yeah. It's like, a, you know, that word always, it's so bad. I think about like Pocahontas. <laughs> I don't know. And right. I, you know, like that word just made me think about Pocahontas. A lot of the rituals you say play out. I don't know how we ended up at Pocahontas, Amanda. I don't, I told you there are rabbit trails. I don't understand. It, <laughs> it happens when you're like a millennial that grew up with Disney. It there's no avoiding it. Everything relates back to one of those Disney yeah. movies your parents turned on so you'd be quiet. But uh, yeah. these rituals, which I mean, whatever you want to call them, they are these things that we walk through to to deal with the loss or to deal with whatever it is we're, we're going through at the time. So how have your own grief rituals been molded by yeah. this experience and by everything that you have yeah. learned? And why does much of what we do in response to grief now not really meet the emotional needs yeah. that these rituals were trying to address. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought up just the word ritual. I always get a little nervous when people ask me, well, what's a ritual? Cause I'm not a cultural anthropologist. Yeah. Like I know there let's are, be like, clear here. let's be clear here. <laughs> let's be clear on this, that I know there are certain things that kind of qualify something, you know, kind of culturally, historically, anthropologically as being a ritual. But, but to me, what's interesting is that I, I think we use the word pretty loosely in, in our culture. And we, you know, we talk about like, I have a morning coffee ritual or my face cream ritual. Well, it's like, okay, that's kind of a habit. That's yeah. like a routine. Yes. A ritual is, is a ritual to me. What makes something a ritual is that it has this kind of agreed upon sense of meaning. Mm-hmm. Like to me, it's really hard to practice a ritual alone. Mm-hmm. It has to be done communally. And, and, that's so true. I mean, there are very few grief rituals that I study that are practiced alone. Most are practiced in community. They're a communal response. And, and I'm afraid what we have in our culture is we have a lot of grief habits, right? Like my grief habits were Netflix binging and scrolling through Facebook 
and, you know, food, drink, I mean, yeah. you name it, yeah. whatever it was Absolutely. numbed the pain. Whereas in other cultures, they, they create rituals to actually intentionally dunk you down deep into the pain. Mm. It's like they, they create the rituals were for the sake of encountering it, not avoiding it. And they were done communally. Like the only way you could survive a ritual <laughs> because it's so painful is to do it in community, you know? And so that, that to me feels like the the biggest difference is like the difference between doing something to kind of, you know, create a palliative or a numbing or an easing of the pain versus a a ritual that forces you to look your pain square in the eyes. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, I read a lot from psychologists about this healthy oscillation that we experience in grief. Like you can't, you can't encounter your grief 24 seven all the time. You actually do need a break from it. And so I don't think it's wrong to say, I'm going to distract myself. Mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of think about something else for a while. But when we only do that and we don't have this oscillation where we actually think about it, encounter it, name it, then that's where we get really off balance. And I think you, you even mentioned that at some point, you talk about how we are terrified of silence. We don't want the quiet. We don't want to be left with our thoughts and our feelings. And so we do those things. We bring in the Netflix, we bring in, you know, it's why we put, yes, we're still watching when it asks. It's why we get the second serving. It's why we refill the glass, you know, like there are, there are very much these reasons to numb it. Because we don't want, we don't know how to face it. And that is the point of these rituals. I mean, you even talk about telling the bees, you know, and you talked about the fear that's involved with the mirrors, covering the mirrors. But the telling the bees was one of my favorite rituals that you talk about. So I wanted to bring that up here for you to talk about what it is, the telling the bees ritual, and what we can learn about fear from that. Yeah. Well, t- I was really interested in this ritual because my husband's actually a beekeeper. We've got That's four awesome. hives now. And, Do you and struggle so with bears? We don't struggle personally with bears. Yeah. Thank you for asking. You're there welcome. There are bears in the area, <laughs> but we they don't seem to come kind of into our holler per se. Yeah. They're in like a few hollers over. We've had friends that have bear issues, but we've so far we've we've not encountered one. Watch me see one tonight. I like, know. I just the, <laughs> number one. I love that you are so far out in the country that you can use hollers so like casually in conversation. <laughs> But one one of my very best friends, her dad is a beekeeper and he literally, they had a bear on their front porch a a couple of weeks ago, like looking in their window. I mean, it is just common, but they always have bears coming. So I always think about that when people say that they keep bees. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the whole notion that bears are obsessed with honey may have come a little bit more from Winnie the Pooh than reality. But anyway, (laughs) so yes, thank you for asking. We have more of a deer and squirrel problem than we do. um, Those squirrels, they're always ruining everything. They'll get you. They will get you. (laughs) But Um, telling the bees. So I was interested. Yes, I was interested in that ritual because, yeah, because my husband keeps bees, because there's, there's so much... There's actually so many interesting, like, so much folklore around bees and honey that's, I mean, it stretches all the way back to Egypt, you know, and, and the, the ancient Egyptians. But the, the ritual was this belief and, you know, it's practice, like, they don't really know when it emerged, but Europe, America, 1700s, 1800s, it was believed that if someone in the household died, 
and the household owned honey bees or hives that someone had to go and inform the bees that, that someone had died and they had to put the bees in mourning, quote unquote. And so they draped black cloth over the bee boxes or the bee hives. And the superstition was that if you didn't do this, the bees would fly away or die. And so mm-hmm. that was obviously would be catastrophic for a family who, who relied on the income from the honey. And so to me, I think what's just interesting about that is that, I mean, my husband talks a lot. Okay. Confession. I have never gone up to the beehives. Like I'm amazed that that I'm was, scared. I'm envisioning you in like the whole get up, like the, the mask with the gloves and you're reaching no. in to get the beehive. No yeah, I just, no, you really destroyed that for me now. I just I'm had a very whole. very sorry. <laughs> I, it just, speaking of fear, I'm just kind of afraid. And besides that, my husband has told me that it would maybe be a little bit of a disaster if I went up there because the bees tend to stay calm if the beekeeper is calm. Mm -hmm. So bees can kind of smell fear Mm -hmm. and they, when, you know, when you're doing these kind of agitated, quick, startled movements, if you're nervous, they get startled too and they respond and they might attack. And that's why my husband's such an awesome beekeeper is he's like the most calm, even gentle, even keel person in the world. And so he was like, yeah, you might not actually want to go up there. (laughs) Did you, did you ever see my girl? Is that where your fear stems from? Is that it? Well, I was so afraid of the concept yeah. of death by bees that I didn't watch the movie. That was, so that, that is, is like, listen, I will never, I could never watch the movie again for that very reason. Yeah. It's just, it scarred me. Talk about millennial movies. Like, like shaped I us. I just will never yes. go back. But it did, it did kind of make me wonder, like, how do you, how does a person who's just lost someone kind of collect themselves and calm themselves enough to kind of tranquilly go out to the beehive sure. and 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 you know inform them of this news and I, I just thought that was kind of an interesting idea is that you know no some sometimes you do have to kind of just say no I'm going to step forward in life in spite of my fear in spite of everything I'm feeling and I'm going to do what I need to do to survive and that's what these people did and that's what they they believe needed to be done in order to kind of prevent them from losing their livelihoods. But it's, it's a really fascinating ritual. And there are all kinds of newspaper clippings from that time period of like, you know, kind of stories of bees flying away after someone had died and they didn't tell them properly or mm-hmm. bees showing up to the funeral of their beekeepers. Like, it's just wild. I just, I didn't know that bees were so in tune with their emotions and they're like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. And, and, and actually just as it so happens, like one of the years that we had so much loss in our family, our bees just flew away. Like really? They, yeah. They, they call it absconding and it's, they just left, they left the hive and we have no idea what happened. Like Tim has some ideas. Maybe it was mites. Maybe it was whatever, but it's like, I, now I'm like, well, it's because we didn't tell the bees. Yeah, we didn't <laughs> we tell didn't them. T- we were supposed to go. Well, I yeah. have heard of beekeepers like talking to their bees a lot yeah. so, and like the calming yeah. of like their voice and the their vocalizations and the bees yeah. can recognize it. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how I know that or where I've heard that before, yeah. but it doesn't, yeah. that's why it was easy for me to connect that to go yeah. and tell the bees that they somehow are like in tune with their beekeeper. And, you know, this is just occurring. I've literally never thought this until you and I are just having this conversation right now. But I do, I think there's something about, you know, maybe the bees absconded because in all of our losses, Tim actually just kind of forgot to do some things he needed to do to take care of them. And there is something about this ritual that just reminds you, okay, 
life is hard. There's still things that you need to be present for. And, and maybe that's just kind of like a first step to say, okay, you don't forget about the bees. Don't forget to take care of the things you can take care of. And here's, here's kind of your on ramp for that, you know, yeah. and that's a really hard thing to do in grief, but you, you have to do it. You have to bring your broken presence mm. to your life. Mm. That's bringing your broken presence to your life because you, that is, you just feel broken and you yeah. just are like, I don't want to show up for anybody. I, I don't want to go or do or be anything or anywhere. And at times it's like, I think we can put timelines on grief on behalf of other people, yeah. you know, yeah. like I'm going to give you space to grieve and I'm going to be with you in it. But then mm-hmm. at some point the person or you or whoever has to learn to live within the grief again. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure there are moments that maybe, I mean, you mentioned shame at times with like how you were responding. Talk a little bit about those points that you were embarrassed by your own grief. Like the world mm-hmm. is ready for you to just be like, okay, let's come on. We've got to, we yeah. got to keep going. And you just felt like you couldn't yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think you ever graduate from grief. I don't think you ever Mm -hmm. kind of get back to normal. You kind of hit this new normal, this new level of capacity, but it actually takes a really long time before you can function reasonably well in life. And what I mean by that is that there were just in the year after my sister's death, I couldn't respond to emails. You know, Mm -hmm. I would get, I, I would, I've looked back on some of the emails I sent and thought that that's complete nonsense. Like, I don't even know what I was trying to say. Or you get kind of disoriented in a meeting, like I'd be doing a presentation and then completely forget what I was saying. Like you're, you you have, I mean, grief is a physiological experience. And so I, I was really fortunate to have really gracious people in my life. And I was at the time I was an aid worker. And so these are people that know what suffering is. They know the impact of death and loss. And so it, I felt like they were actually a pretty well-informed crew to be keeping company with yeah. in the aftermath of my loss. And I was grateful for that. But I do think there's a sense in which like, you know, a week of bereavement time is not enough. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's, it's, it's not enough to kind of be able to function at full capacity in life two weeks later, three weeks later, you just have to give yourself time. And, and that, that's what was hard is when people would, you know, of course they forgot it'd been six months, it'd been nine months. They're not thinking about it all the time. Like, you know, well, why, why isn't this turned in on time? Or why Mm -hmm. did you forget to buy this? Or why didn't you show up to this? And it's like, why can't you come to the party tonight? And it's like, I'm having a griefy day. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, you know, that's all I can say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what's hard about it. You talk about a little bit that the one of the other losses you shared was the loss of your grandmother. You were overseas. Yeah, I was in East Africa in yep. Congo. Yeah. And and your grandmother passed away and you couldn't get back, but you also yeah. had to like still show up and be in meetings and and do the yeah. presentations and and share and do do your job in the midst yeah. of it. I just I'm curious, how do you find the line? I know that when I've experienced great loss, I throw myself into work. Like I already just yeah. love to work. I enjoy it. And so it's like my key distraction point. It's yeah. almost, I don't necessarily struggle so much with the Netflix and the scrolling as much as I'm like, give me something to do. So I'm not yeah. thinking about. So kind of where's the line between, how do you know when you're ready to go back or how do you, yeah. how do you know, okay, I got to, I just have to show up now and fake it until I make it, even if you yeah. don't feel like you're ready. Is there yeah. anything you've learned in the process of, of how you know when you are ready to, to return? Yeah. Well, 
I don't know if you ever will get to a point where it's like, oh, I feel fully ready. You sure. know, it's not like a knee replacement surgery. And it's like, oh, I have full like range of motion again. Yeah. I'm good to go. But I think if you're willing, I think you have to kind of submit yourself to a series of like, you have to be willing to ask for some things. Okay, right. So, so like if you're willing to say, okay, I'm going to go back to work, but I'm going to ask for grace and I'm going to ask for patience from people. I think that that's when you know, maybe that you're ready, like when you're ready to kind of name your inadequacy, I guess, or to kind of name yeah, your, yeah. your, your weakness in it and say, I'm going to need help. I'm going to need grace from people in that. I mean, I think the main reason I didn't, I actually didn't tell anyone that my grandmother had died when I was on that trip. And it was because I was, I was just afraid of people's pity. Yes. And that's a curious thing. Like, why yeah. are we, why are we so fearful of being treated with pity? And does it make us feel weak or humble? Is it humiliating? Like, what, what is it? And it's like, okay, if you're willing to submit yourself to some level of humiliation, then I think you're ready to start integrating back into the world to say, I'm going to be here. I'm going to show up, but it's not, I'm not going to be the perfect self that I want to be. I'm not going to be the most productive self that I'm, I'm, I'd like to be. And if you're willing to kind of invite people onto that journey with you, then I think you can step back into the tracks of your life and just be there and kind of just, yeah, again, it's kind of a fake it till you make it, but it's more just kind of like retraining yourself and how to be in the world with this new burden that you're bearing. It's so, I mean, even, you know, what, what you just said, that pity. And that's, that's a lot of times why I don't share when there's any sort of hard thing in my life or loss or, or any sense of grief is I don't want the pity and I can't hold your feelings and my feelings mm-hmm. right now because yeah. I am yeah. a people pleaser and I know that about yeah. myself. Yeah. I am going to want to make you feel better and I don't yeah. have capacity to yeah. do that. So I would rather just pretend like none of it's happening and you don't even I, talk to me about it. You know, I am so glad you said that. <laughs> that, that honestly, like receiving can receiving condolences is the one of the hardest things I've ever done. Yeah. And it's like, you know, of course you don't want people to ignore it or to treat you like nothing's happened, but people sometimes want to kind of meet you at your level of sorrow. And then they think, well, you're grieving. So all you want to do is talk about the grief and then they start crying and then you're crying. And it's just, it's like, this is a lot to carry. This is a lot to yeah. manage. It's a lot to receive. And so, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's why like there's this really fine balance between showing grace to a griever, but also treating them like a normal person. Now is not the moment for you. Cause I had a lot of people when they saw me for the first time, they'd be like, Oh, you know what? Like my loved one also died five years ago. Let me tell you that whole thing and put all of that on you. I'm more ready to receive that now, but Mm -hmm. two weeks after three weeks after that was really hard. You know, that it was really hard to just start suddenly feeling like, okay, now I am a container for everybody. So because I'm kind of the most recent member inductee into this club, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, welcome, let me tell you everything I've been. It's like, ah, it's hard. Like that's, that's difficult. Yeah. And then when you do, when you have a personality that you're like, well, I want to, now I feel like I got to comfort you. Now I got to, like, I don't, I know. And I don't know how to do that, but that does bring me to one of the things that I find hardest because I am such a helper and I just want people to feel better. And I want to be aware of how people are feeling and I want to help them walk through it. 
when you were walking through some of those deepest, darkest times, like those two weeks out or when it did just happen to it, and almost like instinctually, as people find out news like this, their instinct is they need to hear from me. They need to hear from me. They need to hear from me. Right. Yeah. How do you walk with someone who is in grief that maybe you don't understand how I I just wonder if there are things that pop out to you that people did that you were like, that was great. Like that, that was actually very helpful. Yeah. I get really nervous about giving people too much advice about what to say or not say to a griever because I think there's so much out there right now about like, don't say this, don't be an idiot. Don't, you know, this, when you say this, it hurts that people are now becoming so fearful of saying something wrong that they don't say anything at all. So I want, I want to kind of, if we can simplify it as much as possible, I think, I think kind of the, the ritual of sitting Shiva, which I explored in the book, Mm -hmm. it's a Jewish ritual where people come to the home of the bereaved and they just sit with them and they're present with them and they visit with them. I really liked what my friend Shelly, who's Jewish, she told me kind of the rules of Shiva are you mirror the, you mirror the, the response of the griever. Mm -hmm. So if the griever is crying, then cry with them. If the griever is laughing, then laugh with them. If the griever is talking about other things, talk about other things. If the griever is talking about their, their lost loved one and sharing stories, then you can share stories. And to me, that's just a really helpful image. It's like, it's hard to remember a script. It's really easy to remember a mirror. Like just because I, I think, yeah, sometimes, like I said, grievers want to talk about something other than their grief. And sometimes they want to laugh. But I think what was really hard to me is that for months afterwards, everyone who approached me was crying mm-hmm. and just upset and, and wanted me to know they were upset for me. And I appreciated that. But I also sometimes wanted to be like, oh, man, can I just not feel like an alien on earth for mm-hmm. a while? You know, so I think that I think mirroring the, the activities of the griever, remember that there's still a whole person, their grief does not define them. And then I think just making yourself available with as few strings attached as possible. Like I just remember several friends who would text me and say, no need to reply to this message. Okay. That immediately makes me feel yeah. like I don't have a job to do. Sure. No need to reply to this message. I want you to know I'm praying for you. Or we had some friends that were like, hey, you want to talk? This was just after she died. Whenever you want to talk, we'll get a babysitter, come over, and we're just going to sit and listen. We'll bring dinner. You just tell us when. And it was like Tuesday. I was like, tonight. Mm-hmm. I'm ready now. And they just came over and they just listened. Like those kind of things where it's just let people know what you can do, make it easy for them to access it. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the things that are most helpful. Yeah. That's so, and just not putting the burden on the person. I remember a friend of mine, she got a really scary diagnosis. She was diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. and it was pretty, <clears throat> and, and it was going to require a lot to start fighting it. And she was starting to get just a million of text messages, which people mean well. It's not a bad thing. It's just like you're loved. You're well loved and cared for. But she always talks about one of the best ones she got. All it was was a heart. And that was it from somebody. And and it was with no expectations. It was with no like, how are you? It was just a simple heart. And she still talks about that, that like that was one of the most valuable because it made her feel again the most seen of like hey you're in a terrible spot you're trying to figure out what this means for you yeah you don't have to explain anything yeah. to me right now just know yeah. that I'm with you in it yeah. and I'm thinking of yeah. you and you know if a griever doesn't reach out to you even if you're like well I'm one of their best friends like they must be mad at me 
like don't take anything personally mm. that happens from that, that that happens in a relationship with a griever in those first few weeks like they're disoriented just because they're they, they might not be calling on you because they're just overwhelmed sure. it has nothing to do with your relationship to them sure you know? to yeah. to someone who's maybe listening or you know knows someone who's maybe in that pit of grief right now and <laughs> they can't really see to the other side of it Maybe it's fresh or maybe they just haven't figured out how to work through it yet. And they just feel like all they're doing is sitting in it and they yeah. can't see what is go what a normal day is ever going to look like again. What would your words be to them in this moment? Yeah. I think the thing I realize is that there are two, the greatest virtues that you can have, I think, in grief are patience, just trusting that this will not last forever. Mm -hmm. Yes, you will always carry the grief, but you're going to develop the strength to carry it. Mm -hmm. That's not going to come right away. It's like working out in a weight room. You slowly develop these muscles that are going to allow you to carry this weight. Yeah. So be patient with yourself. Like the way you feel today is not how you will always feel. The hopelessness of today will not always be there. It, that does not dismiss the reality of it, does not dismiss how catastrophic and shattering it is in this moment, mm -hmm. but know that it will change. Mm -hmm. You will grow. You will slowly rise to meet it. So I would say patience. And then the other virtue is curiosity. I know that sounds strange, but, and, and I don't mean, cause I don't think that we need to always find a silver lining sure. or a redemptive purpose to our pain. Pain is just bad. Death is just sad. You know, there doesn't need to be any, but, you know, I learned so much from it or, but yeah. look at all this good. To get, no, you yeah. don't need to do that. We can just say it was bad, but I think we can look with curiosity about what is God doing in you? Be curious about the love that you're experiencing maybe for the first time through friends and people offering support. Be curious about kind of this expanded capacity for empathy, for wisdom that you're developing and just, just observe and, and watch. Yeah. You know, it, sometimes it's good to kind of lift yourself out of your body and out of the circumstance and kind of be an onlooker and say, okay, what, what's God doing? What, mm -hmm. what, what am I learning? And take, I don't know, there is some comfort to be had there and just knowing that that you're being formed and there's, yeah. there's, there's a little bit of a butterfly effect happening here of like a little bit of this, like you've gone into a dark place mm -hmm. and there is going to be an emergence in which you're going to be a new version of yourself that has something really beautiful to offer to the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that that to me was really comforting too. Yeah. That's so good. Amanda, where can they find you? Where can listeners, cause I know there's so many that are going to be like, I need more of this to continue moving forward. Where can they find you? Where can they order the book? All of, all of that yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I, I hang out some on Instagram. I've got two little kids, so I try to be really present with them, but I'm occasionally, sure. and there's some, there's some great resources on grief and connection that can be made on grief on Instagram. So I'm at Amanda held Opelt on Instagram. And then on my website, Amanda held Opelt.com. I have some music on, you know, you know, wherever you buy your music, music platforms, Amanda Opelt, you can find me there. And, and my books, I think you can order my book pretty much anywhere mm -hmm. you, you buy books, uh, Amazon and Books A Million. Barnes and All Apple, the good so. places. Hey, yeah. side note, how much was your music shaped by this season? Did you find it as a way to kind of navigate some of those feelings? Well, a lot of grief rituals are actually kind of centered around musical expression and chanting and communal 
recitations. And mm-hmm. so I did, I did find music to be really helpful. I struggled to write music about my grief initially because sure. uh, songwriting is by nature concise. <laughs> and that's why I wrote a book, I guess, for the first time. That makes sense. If, 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 if I am nothing else in grief, if not verbose. And so I, you know, but at the same time, like, I think, I think now that I, I feel like I've kind of categorized my grief a little bit more, had some perspective on it. I'm able to write musically about it a little bit more. Yeah. And that's been really helpful and healing. Yeah. I, I didn't remember that you actually write music and share music until you just said where you could find it. Yeah. That's what made me think yeah. the connecting point uh, there, if there was, was one. Yeah, I've got, I actually wrote a kind of an accompanying album to go with the book. So six of the grief rituals I write about in the book are now being released on Spotify. I love that. Well, and I also, and I think it was called The Wailing. It's the one that went with English and like the communicator Uh English and how there's, yes, the keening and how there's literally one woman who's like the person who starts it and just like how she literally will just start. She might start low. She might start wherever she starts and people join in with her, but how like in this ritual, it's okay to scream. Like this is what you do. You are yelling, you are screaming, you are doing all of those things that should be embarrassing. It should be like, no, don't do that. That was probably one of also one of my favorite ones that I read about is that that's like her job. I want to be like, like, how do you get that job? Because I can, I can do that. You know, like I can start. Yeah. I can start. (laughs) And they are paid in many cultures to do it. That's how valuable the skill and the contribution to the community. Yeah. It is a highly valuable skill to be able to scream and wail in sorrow. Gosh, we need more jobs like that around here. I think we'd all be more emotionally healthy if we did like, yeah, you know, like, did you ever see those rooms that started? There were these rooms that started and you could go and just smash things. Yes. Right. And it was like old cars and stuff were in it. And I was like, I don't know. You're either like psychotic, you know, like you're either psychotic or you're, or you're like, I've really got to get a, get rid of some of this emotion. You've got a lot <laughs> yes. going on in your heart that you need to get out for sure. Amanda, we end every episode with one question and it's what are you happy someone did tell you about? So this can be mm. anything like something you're just super into right now, a hobby, a coffee drink, a book, a podcast, a life yes. hack, any of the yes. things. So I am really happy that my friend told me about open mic night at our local brewery because I am, again, this is full circle. Go back to the performance piece. I am a person that really likes to have my stuff together before I go and sing or perform or whatever. And so I always really practice. I worry about what people think. I want it to be good. But open mic night, I've started going pretty regularly. It's just like, you don't really practice. You just go up there with a song and do your best and people celebrate with you. And there's something really freeing and beautiful about that, about saying, hey, I'm just going to lay the curation down for a minute and just be myself and be with my friends. And that's something I'm glad my friend told me about. Yes, there's something about letting go of all the proving, right? Of like. I don't really have anything to prove to any of you. Yeah, like I'm just, you exactly. know, and there's just, We're just a, hanging out. Yeah. I just feel like that only comes as you get older though. Like, yeah, I just feel like you do it for so long. And one day you're, you look around and you're like, what a waste of time. I mean, what am I yeah. wh- like? Why am I so worried about this right now? Yeah. No, that's, that makes yeah. perfect. I don't know that I would ever step up on an open mic night. I do love some karaoke, <laughs> you know, cause at least at <laughs> karaoke, the expectation is very low. Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, that's true. That is very true. <laughs> no one's expecting much out of you when you walk out there, right? That's uh, right. What would your that's karaoke right. song be? 
Oh, gosh. I'd probably dig deep again to my millennial roots and do some kind of Alanis Morissette. You'd have to. You'd have no choice. I'd have to. You'd have to. I still remember one of her music videos where she had the long hair and nothing else on. I think it was on like TRL one day. Yeah. Oh, I know. Which I was not supposed to be watching. So don't tell my mom that I used to watch it when she was at work. That's top secret. We won't mention it. (laughs) Amanda, thanks so much for jumping in with us. I just, this was. My favorite interviews are the ones that I am better from, that I've learned something that have been for me, that has been formational for me, and that's been today's interview. So thanks so much for jumping in. With I us. feel the I feel the same, Kelly. Thank you for having me. On.